0: My fellow Americans and all those listening overseas, welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I'm your host, Joe Fakash, and today we have a special treat. We are going to New York City. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, right? And Teddy Roosevelt certainly did. (laughs) Maybe he's the reason they wrote that song, but Teddy Roosevelt is our 26th president. He is from New York City, born right in the heart of Manhattan. Of course, we more commonly associate him with being out on Long Island at his home, Sagamore Hill, but he was from New York City, and a good sign of just how wealthy his family was that each of the children had their own brownstone in the heart of Manhattan gives you a very good indication of that Roosevelt wealth. Before we get started, I did want to continue answering some questions from episode 24 that I wasn't able to get to. It was almost an hour to begin with, so you can imagine just how long it would have been. This is another question from a work camp. in this case, Judge Michael Workcamp. Michael and I go way back, all the way back to seventh grade when we were both in the low brass section of our band together. Michael's one of the hardest working people I've ever met in my entire life, and I know a lot of people, but Michael is now a judge in our home county, Paulding County, Ohio. I am very proud of him. He and I could not have been more different in terms of our political views, but we never let that get in the way of a real friendship. When I moved into my dorm freshman year at Ohio State, right across the hall, who would be there but Michael one of the best people and one of the best families that I know. Michael asks the question, what elements do you think make the most effective birthplace commemoration? Is it signage, an original or model residence, giving tours, a museum, concessions? I love that question, because it really did make me think, okay, what are you expecting when you go to these places? And I have to say, you know, Little Joe, as I've talked about before, Little Joey expected a lot out of these places. He expected the McKinley, Lincoln, Washington treatment, you know, where it would be over the top and every place would, you know, stop in their tracks. And that would be the main feature of that town. Clearly, that's not going to be the case. And what is interesting now is watching some of these more modern presidents and their birthplaces really kind of deal with what does it mean to commemorate some of these people, when they're in the middle of functioning hospitals, like Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump were all born in the middle of still functioning hospitals. And in the case of Bill Clinton's, now it's a funeral home. But what do you do when that's the case? You know, this is still something that's not ongoing. And so I guess what I would really like is, of course, signage. I think every town should really make... (laughs) A case for the fact that they're the birthplace of a president. I mean, my hometown, Defiance, Ohio, our big claim is the birthplace of Pontiac, the great Native American chief. And they make a pretty good deal about it, right? And there are several different parts that are commemorated in what's called Pontiac Park. And I feel like that should be kind of pro forma for presidents of the United States. Are you kidding? They should have, you know, and some do, right? And some make a big case of it. If you go to, for instance, uh, Ronald Reagan's in Tampico or Plains, Georgia for Jimmy Carter, you know, they make a big deal about it. And so it just <laughs> kind of bothers me when there aren't. Now, there are, of course, in modern examples where they are overshadowed by maybe the museum or a grave site commemoration. And especially when they're in close approximation to other sites, it can be a little bit tricky. Concessions are a big thing for me, right? I want something to tangibly show I was there, and so I always look for a mug at a place, and if they have any kind of guidebook or postcard, those are the things I want where I can, you know, later go back and look at it and kind of recollect. And so those are some of the things that I look for. If possible, you know, of course, I would love for every place to have a birthplace replica. It's impossible in the case of like a Franklin Pierce, but it's not so impossible. I'm looking at you, North Bend, and Benjamin Harrison's birthplace. Come on you can do something. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. So yeah, I think the thing that really gets me is just how widely varied it is. And it does kind of go back to a reflection on the individual. And the fact that they were presidents, I think should be a big deal. So thank you for that question, Michael. And keep the questions coming. I love this. A few listeners have reached out about ways that they can help support visiting the presidents outside of helping to get the word out. And if you are so inclined, I have added a PayPal link on the episode page on visitingthepresidents.com, as well as the episode page for the podcast. So whatever podcast app that you're listening to, there is a link on the episode page. Do not feel pressured at all to donate Any monies received will be used for future trips, as well as the hosting fees for the website and for the podcast. This is a complete labor of love, and I have enjoyed doing this so much, and I have been gratified by the support that I've received. So do not feel pressure whatsoever, but if you are at all inclined, there is now a way for you to help support visiting the president, and I appreciate that. Although it seems like he was always with us, Teddy Roosevelt came into this world on October the 27th, 1858, and the family's brownstone on East 20th Street in the middle of Manhattan. His birthplace was located right between Union Square and Madison Square. Today, Madison Square Garden gets its name from Madison Square Park, which had been at this location from before, but if you know where the Flatiron building is, it is a very short walk from there to Teddy Roosevelt's birthplace. He was named for his father, so another of these, not really juniors, but a junior. His mother said he looked like a cross between his doctor who delivered him and a terrapin. His grandmother said that he was sweet and pretty. His family always called him Teddy. The Roosevelts were Dutch, Scots, Huguenot and English. Kleis Martinsen van Rosenwelt, a farmer, moved to New Netherland, as it was called, in 1644. On the other side of his family, Archibald Bullock was the first governor of Georgia during the American Revolution. Theodore Sr. was a merchant and a native of New York City, born there, a partner of Roosevelt and Sons, an importing firm specializing in plate glass. Theodore Sr. was very wealthy. He combined his philanthropy and enjoyment at playing host to his wealthy friends to help fund several civic features in New York City, including the New York Orthopedic Hospital, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and other major institutions. He was a big supporter of Abraham Lincoln, which caused some division with his Southern wife, and he avoided the draft by purchasing a substitute like we talked about with Grover Cleveland. He served as a civilian allotment commissioner during the war, which meant he toured army camps to encourage troops to send some of their pay home. Theodore Sr. was then named the collector of the Port of New York by Rutherford Hayes, and remember that the position before that Was Chester Arthur, and this was meant to help combat that Roscoe Conkling machine that was in place. And so, just a weird confluence there. The Senate rejected the nomination. However, he looked, Theodore Senior looked out for little T.D. and pushed him to reach for whatever he could achieve, both in academics and otherwise. Theodore Sr. took his whole family on this world tour, and little T.D. said that the two days that were spent with the two of them hiking around in England were, quote, the happiest days that I have ever spent, because he got his father's full attention. When he was back in New York, he was always on the go, always looking for other things, and did really kind of pass that down to young T.D., Theodore Sr. died of intestinal cancer while Theodore Jr. was in college, but Teddy, of course, will cite him as the greatest influence in his life. His mother, Martha, or Mitty Bullock, was a sweet, gracious Southern woman, in his son's words, born on a plantation. She was unreconstructed to the day that she died, never coped without having slaves to do her housework. Mitty was always very bad where housework was concerned, and managing finances, but she was very charming and everything else, and had Theodore Sr. and Theodore Jr. kind of wrapped around her finger. She donated food and clothing to Confederates through these agents throughout the war. Teddy noted that she battled what he called sick headaches, but she was always willing to put anything aside to sit with the very sickly Theodore Jr. and comforted throughout all of his illnesses. He called her always darling, beloved little mother. And if you remember back to episode four, when I told what I called my mom, (laughs) it's a big contrast. She died of typhoid fever on the very same day that Theodore's first wife died in childbirth in the very same house. And this, of course, is going to lead to him kind of losing his marbles for a short period. Theodore was the second of four children with two sisters and a brother, and of course that brother, Elliot, is the father of Eleanor Roosevelt, who will later of course be First Lady with Franklin. Growing up, Theodore was always a very sickly young boy, and I can remember all of the books I had about Teddy when I was little. You know, They would always talk about how he really had to be kept inside. You got to think about how congested and filthy New York City really would have been. So for all of its trappings and all of the things that Theodore Sr. really loved about New York, it was also probably a real minefield for young Theodore Jr. And really contrasts with some of the other presidents who we've talked about who dreamt of living in a city, dreamt of the hubbub and connectivity of a major city, but they grew up with not as many health conditions as young Teddy. So really contrast there. He had asthma so bad that he had to sleep upright, and he battled both diarrhea and coughs and a whole host of other illnesses throughout his childhood. This, of course, is going to be a good sign of Teddy, where whenever he is up against an obstacle, it always kind of enabled something else, and so he starts in his being an invalid, this lifelong fascination with animals, and he opened the, what he called, Roosevelt Museum of Natural History in his own home, that birthplace home, in New York City, and was determined to be a zoologist. And there's a story about how he was really excited to get a seal's head from a local fishmonger, and that was the thing that really got him started, being able to stuff animals and display their skeletons. That was something he was really into. He was, as you can guess, hyperactive and mischievous, and his father then encouraged him to put his energy to good use, and strengthen his physique, which he worked at religiously. He began to take boxing lessons after getting beaten up by some neighborhood toughs. He spent two trips abroad, a tour of Europe, which I talked about a little bit ago, where he spent Christmas in Rome from 1879 into 1870, and kissed the hand of Pope Pius IX, and threw food at beggars to watch them scramble which I thought was a really odd story. He really didn't have that empathy in place at that. And you can imagine being a spoiled little boy that that would have been the case. From 1872 to 1873, they visited Egypt and the Holy Land. He liked to play tennis and hike. He took up jujitsu. I, I was kind of blown away by that. Loved a horseback ride and even liked a skinny dip in the Potomac, joining John Quincy Adams in that. Theodore loved to read books about anything, anything but especially animals and history, also biographies, poetry, and fiction. He kept a diary most days and wrote extensively throughout his life, and I have a collection of some of the books that he wrote, The Naval War of 1812, Hunting Trip for a Ranch Man, Ranch Life in the Hunting Trail, and The Winning of the West, as well as biographies of Thomas Hart Benton and Gouverneur Morris. Just to give you an example of how widely varied his interests were, I just have a lot of respect for anybody who can look from topic to topic like that. In terms of his appearance, Teddy is probably best known for his giant, ever-ready grin, which was prominently featured in campaign materials and cartoons, but really based in reality that he was always smiling, and his pince-nez, that's spelled P-I-N-C-E-N-E-Z, so the French word for nose, those little glasses that you see on the bridge of his nose that were used to help correct myopia, but you might not know that he also was partially blind later as president from a boxing match that he had in the White House. He became a pretty robust man, a very far cry from the small, spindly, sickly child that he was, with all of those forms of illnesses when he was growing up, he just fashionably and was known to stand with his head pitched forward a bit. He craved the limelight, which you're likely aware of. His daughter, Alice, said that he longed to be, quote, the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. And it could get annoying. I remember reading about when Franklin and Eleanor get married and ask the president to come to the wedding, and nobody would pay attention to the bride and groom because Teddy was holding court. He was fearless, decisive, and ambitious. He loved entertaining children and was a very gifted raconteur, especially with tales of his own adventures, which he was known to embellish. He hated dirty jokes and would leave right in the middle of them, so he and William McKinley likely got along on that one. He was a very engaging speaker, always in motion while speaking, with his fists pounding or his hands diving around in the air. But he also listened very well, too, and he had a good memory for other people's names and their stories, and a nearly photographic memory, stunning people with whole passages of books that he had read decades before. Now, if you're trying to guess what Teddy Roosevelt's Myers-Briggs would have been, he is definitely, definitely an ESTP. He could not be more extroverted if he tried. And those individuals are usually considered bold, rational, and practical. I could see some of that. Original, perceptive, direct, and sociable. And I think each and every one of those is really spot on. Again, they could also be insensitive, impatient, and remember him running from class to class, risk prone. I think he was impulsive in terms of deciding early on that he was not going to run for another term in 1908, unstructured, possibly missing the bigger picture, and then really big on being defiant. And again, I think each and every one of those is kind of spot on, when it comes to Teddy Roosevelt, I wanted to read you some quotes from some of his contemporaries. Elihu Root praised him by saying, men say he is not safe. He is not safe for the men who wish to prosecute selfish schemes to the public detriment, who wish government to be conducted with greater reference to campaign contributions than to the public good, who wish to draw the president of the United States into a corner and make whispered arrangements which they dare not have known by their constituents, and does seem like Root is speaking to what a break Roosevelt is from his predecessors. Of all of the presidents, Roosevelt best understood the uses of publicity. He had a genius for it. He had his favorites among the reporters, but he played fair with all, and that was a reporter named Gus Carger. Negatively, there is going to be Warren Harding, who will later become president who writes, while the mad Roosevelt has a new achievement to his credit, he succeeded in defeating the party that furnished him a job for nearly all of his manhood days after leaving the ranch and showed his gratitude for the presidency at that party's hands. The eminent fake year can now turn to raising hell, his specialty along other lines. Calvin Coolidge, towards the end of his life, will say, Theodore Roosevelt was always getting himself in hot water by talking before he had to commit himself upon issues not very well defined. And even William Howard Taft would say, My judgment is that Mr. Roosevelt ascribing an undefined residuum of power to the president that is unsafe doctrine, and that it might lead under emergencies to results of an arbitrary character doing irredeemable justice to private right. And you can almost imagine just how much he, again, is speaking more to what had come before than what came after. And so for every person that sees Roosevelt's accomplishments with this kind of rose-colored view, you also had people that were seeing it in less apt terms. And those three men I quoted on the negative side were all his own party members, Theodore was raised Dutch Reformed, joining at 16. As a child, the family went to the Madison Square Presbyterian Church and later Episcopal services when he was married. In college, he taught Sunday school at Christ Church in Cambridge until he was dismissed for not being an Episcopalian. He was very well versed in the Bible and believed in an activist Christian mentality, not relying on the Lutheran and Calvinist doctrines of salvation by faith, or the Roman Catholic doctrines of infallibility, or confessions of sin. He was adamantly opposed to blending church and state, and opposed the inscription of, in God we trust, on coins. And you might be familiar with the idea that he really gets caught up in this notion of what they called muscular Christianity, which was going to Ask that you be performative in your Christianity. Because he was so sick as a boy, Teddy could only attend Professor McMullen's school near his home for a few months at a time. But his aunt Annie helped tutor him, though he later found out that her over romanticized stories about the antebellum South were not in line with the general (laughs) narrative. He also had a tutor that his father hired to indulge his interest in taxidermy. He studied in Dresden during that summer abroad in 1873 and impressed his instructors in German and French. His tutor, Arthur Hamilton Cutler, prepared him for his Harvard entrance exams when he returned, and he was admitted in 1875. He excelled there in the sciences, German, obviously, rhetoric, and philosophy. He became librarian for the Porcelain Club, the final group that later denied his fifth cousin, Franklin. And if you watched The Social Network, you know that the Porcelain becomes one of these final groups that everybody wants to get into. He was made secretary of the Hasty Pudding Club, the vice president of the Natural History Club, which he would have been really good at, editor of the Advocate, and founder of the Finance Club. He was the runner-up for his campus's lightweight boxing championship and was remembered for his sportsmanship during the fight. He graduated magna cum laude and and member of Phi Beta Kappa, and decided to give up his ambition to be a naturalist and study the law instead. He entered Columbia Law School in 1880, but dropped out very soon thereafter to run for the state assembly and never finished. I remember reading the story about how he would run from class to class on Harvard campus and just read tons of books. Theodore was then elected at just 23 years old, to the state assembly and became known as a cyclone assemblyman. He had no problem crossing party lines to work with then-Governor Grover Cleveland and helped sponsor civil service reform. He was criticized for not aligning himself with Senator James Blaine in 1884 and then, of course, left the assembly when his wife and mother died on Valentine's Day, deciding to head to the Dakota Territory, where he worked as a cattle rancher, and then deputy sheriff for Billings County in what is today South Dakota. He came back to New York City and ran for mayor in 1886 and was defeated, but then threw himself into his writing, and we talked about the various interests he had there, and campaigned for Republican Benjamin Harrison in 1888. Harrison then is going to appoint him as a member of the U.S. Civil Service Commission, enforcing many of the new reforms on the books, and that's where we'll leave off with Teddy's rise and, of course, come back to that next decade when we return in season two, but that's going to be where we get into the rough riders and all of that fun stuff, so that's where we'll leave off for now. Now, as for the birth site, it was built by Cornelius Roosevelt in the 1840s, where he bought the lot on East 20th Street and built two identical brownstones and gave them to his sons who moved in when they got married. Theodore and Martha moved in in 1854, and you would really have to get along with your sibling and or your (laughs) in-laws in order for this to work, right? After returning from Europe in 1873, the family moved to a home on 57th Street though the house remained in the family through 1896 the neighborhood shifted to a commercial property and different businesses moved into the home until 1916 when the house was demolished demolished to make way for a two-story cafe in 1904 the newly christened roosevelt club of mostly local republicans moved into the building and hung banners to advertise the birthplace location, including the quote, hallowed spot, his birthroom. Roosevelt was the first president whose birthplace was being preserved while he was still president, and he sent his appreciation to the Roosevelt Home Club as they sought to purchase the property and restore it to its original appearance. That group ballooned to include Thomas Edison and the president of Harvard College, Charles Eliot. Donations went unaccounted for, however, and the group was mired in controversy. Remember, this happened with James Monroe's home as well, and even attracted Theodore's attention for some of the financial misdeeds. The group's organizational deficiencies led to the property being sold to commercial developments and then that destruction of the property. After Roosevelt's death, there were several groups organized that evolved into what became the Roosevelt's Memorial Association, which sought to rebuild the brownstone and establish a museum and civic meeting place. In 1921, the commercial space itself was raised five years after being constructed, so that's two raisings in five years, and the cornerstone was laid for the replica building in a very big ceremony with a large group celebrating that move. The newly formed Roosevelt Memorial Association, now headquartered in Roosevelt's home in Oyster Bay, And focused mainly on Sagamore Hill, gave a huge donation. The two organizations merged in 1953 to create the Theodore Roosevelt Association. By 1923, the replica was opened, and a museum and its offices were housed in an adjacent building. In 1923, the replica was opened with a museum and offices in the adjacent building where Theodore's brother had lived. In 1862, a marker was put above the front door visible to the street that says, Landmark of New York, Theodore Roosevelt Birthplace. President Roosevelt was born here on October 27th, 1858, and lived here until he was 15. The house, a typical brownstone of the 1840s, was restored in 1923 and opened as a museum. The house was donated the very next year to the National Park Service. This is one of the birthplaces that I have not been inside, every time I have gone to New York, it has been closed for one reason or another. One of the first times it was a huge construction project on the outside. There was another time when they were renovating on the interior. Right now they are closed for COVID. And I'll post this video on my webpage for this episode. There was a tour uh, that they recorded where they went all around the birthplace and showed off some of the really cool features, including the replica of the Teddy Roosevelt Natural History Museum that he created when he was little, and they have all sorts of personal effects. It's very clear that they work in close concert with the house out in Oyster Bay to make sure that there are a good accumulation of Roosevelt paraphernalia and materials, but I myself, I've not been able to go inside. Like I said, I've been outside of it several times, including the most recent was last summer in the summer of COVID when I stopped in New York City in between going to James Buchanan's places out in Pennsylvania and on my way up to the Places in Vermont. I stopped in New York City and was just strolling around. I was right by Madison Square Park, so not very far away from the Theodore Roosevelt birthplace, and it was again closed. I've checked the website multiple times this summer, and they have no indication of when they're going to open up again, and so I'll keep my eye on it. Hopefully, I'll be able to stop by on my way going north, but I wouldn't count on it, and so I do advise that you check the website regularly if you want to go inside. Otherwise, you, like me, might have to settle for an exterior photo. I do count those, especially in a place like Teddy Roosevelt's birthplace, where it is a replica, so you're on the spot, and anything you see inside is going to be a replica, but not necessarily you know the exact spot. And it is apparent that they did take some liberties with the design of the house. Even on that sign, they say, this is more of a replica of a brownstone in the 1840s than like this exact one. And if you look at the historical nature of that house, they've done a lot of things to the outside to commemorate it over time. And so that in itself is going to be historic. Before the summer of 2020, I had gone with my parents and my aunt Cindy and cousin Heather to New York City in August of 2015 and we made the track. We were walking around the whole day, and I just remember how exhausted my aunt and cousin were. By the time we got to Teddy Roosevelt's house, they did not care that that was his birthplace, but again, it was locked, and I was not able to go inside, and it is very disappointing to me every time that happens. Now, of course, I plan a lot ahead of time, and I would make sure to, you know, ring their phone off the hook to make sure I'm able to go inside, but I was not doing that back here. And it's New York City. You expect everything to be open. Everything usually is open. And so it just was such a huge bummer. In terms of what it says about our president, Teddy Roosevelt, it is interesting, you know, this is a real confluence of some of the other ideas we've been talking about where, you know, Teddy Roosevelt even now doesn't have a museum dedicated to him. I'd say he's probably the most prominent president who doesn't have a museum dedicated to him. And for somebody who's such a game changer, you would expect that that is going to be rectified at some point. But with Teddy, you also have to keep in mind, this is in the middle of a still flourishing, hustling, and bustling city. And so it is kind of constricted by the space around it. And it's very clear there are all sorts of businesses. And I would imagine a lot of New Yorkers might not even know that it exists. There's just so many other things in New York City. The first several times I went to New York, I didn't even know that Teddy was born right there in the middle of Manhattan. And so it might be easier to miss for other people as well. And so maybe they could do a better job of it. Maybe when they're open, that'll be the case. But you know, certainly you would expect Backed a little bit more, but I guess I'll reserve any other critiques until I'm actually able to go inside, and hopefully that will not be in the too distant future. But just from being able to see it on the outside, you do get the sense of what it would be like to be born in New York City, born in Manhattan, born of this kind of obvious wealth, and it really does suggest the kind of individual he'll become. Of course, today when you're in New York, you know, there are all sorts of people who make complaints about crime and pollution, but it is very sanitized compared to the conditions that Teddy would have grown up among. And so maybe that's something that you can also kind of weigh in ideas of what that town would have been like and where his birthplace would have been. But I do hope to get to visit it and go inside at some point. So I'll hold out hope. For next episode, we will be visiting. Ohio once again for the birthplace of William Howard Taft, another president born in a city. In his case, it's going to be Cincinnati, and the area that he is born is kind of on the outskirts of Cincinnati at that time, and while today it's, you know, really in the middle of the heart of Cincinnati, but that would not have been the case back here, so you won't want to miss William Howard Taft William Howard Taft is a very interesting president. His parents, like Teddy's and some of the other presidents we've talked about, really enables his rise. His father is a very wealthy individual, and Taft has his own legacy in terms of his interest in law, and of course culminates not just with being president, but becoming the only president to serve on the Supreme Court as Chief Justice, so a very interesting individual. You won't want to miss that next week when we go to William Howard Taft's birthplace. Remember to be checking out the podcast website at visitingthepresidents.com, where you can find photographs of my trips, other images, and links to other readings and visitor information. For this episode, my sources were Doug Weed's The Raising of a President, William D. Gregorio's Complete Book of U.S. Presidents, and Louis Picone's Where the Presidents Were Born. There are many ways to help support Visiting the President, including liking and subscribing to the various social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as the Visiting the President's website subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review, as well as any of the other podcast apps, including Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, there is a new support button that you can click on either on the episode page that you're listening to right now or on the website where you can donate if you are so inclined. I appreciate anything that comes my way. Thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you out there on the roads as we go to visit the presidents. See ya.